Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. People were watching the Kavanaugh hearings in bars. It was a moment for this country. Have we learned anything? Well, we've learned that every woman has a story. We've learned that women are pretty angry. We know that social movements often come out of women's anger, so we'll see what happens. I learned a lot. None of it was good. That's Samantha B. She's the host of Full Frontal, the weekly comedy show on TBS. I speak with her about the Me Too movement, the Kavanaugh hearings, and how to make political jokes when politics is far from funny. Plus, that time she got in trouble for saying the word feckless. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay Tuned is brought to you by At Liberty, a podcast produced by the ACLU. Every week, At Liberty dives right into the biggest civil rights and civil liberties issues of our day, with special guests like Cecile Richards, Patrice Cullors, and top civil rights experts. On At Liberty, you'll get legal heavyweight Erwin Chemerinsky's thoughts on the Supreme Court's record. You'll have a front seat to the debate over whether it's possible to defend both free speech and racial justice. And you'll hear the latest on efforts to reunite immigrant families separated by the Trump administration. Subscribe to At Liberty on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. So today's a big day for Stay Tuned. Full Frontal host Samantha B is our guest. That's a big deal. And then tonight we're headed to Town Hall in New York City for a live show with New Yorker staff writer Jeffrey Tubin. That's right. More than 1,400 people are piling into a theater to listen to two lawyers talk. If that sounds exciting, and it should, there are two more shows coming. On November 15th, I'll be in Washington, D.C. with special guest Chuck Todd right after the midterms. And on November 29th, we're in Los Angeles with Kamel Nanjiani. As far as I know, neither Chuck nor Kamel are lawyers. In the meantime, I look forward to seeing you tonight or next month in D.C. or L.A. For more information, head to cafe.com slash tour. That's cafe.com slash T-O-U-R. Now let's get to your questions. Hi, Preet. My name is Kathy. I'm calling from Westchester County. I just listened to the Khashoggi episode, and I'm just wondering, and I've been wondering since this happened, why would he have risked going into that embassy in the first place? 
I heard that he wanted to get married. He needed some documents, but really, it seems unbelievable to me that he would take that chance. If you could comment on that, I would um, love to hear it. Thank you. Kathy from Westchester, thanks for your question. You know, I, I get where you're coming from when you say it's unbelievable to you that he would take that chance. What's unbelievable to me, and I think most people, is that he would be murdered in a premeditated fashion, which is what the evidence seems to support, in that embassy. And Khashoggi was not an intelligence operative. He was a journalist and not even particularly radical, as uh, Farid and I discussed in the last podcast episode. But he must have assumed that for certain purposes, he could go into an embassy that sits in in another country and not have to worry, maybe he'd be harassed, but not have to worry that he would be murdered. Uh, and his family would not have to be worried that he would be butchered. Now, a few things have happened since last week, and this is fast-moving. Since last week, President Erdogan has made statements about what happened and has spoken in fairly strong words. What's interesting to me is that this story is not limited to people who are interested in foreign policy or international relations. It's really sunk into the consciousness of people in the country. And as I tweeted over the weekend, because it is important in so many ways, it is important for what it says about or doesn't say about truth, about democracy, about justice, about freedom, especially of speech. And it's it's fascinating that this one story has captivated everyone, as I think it should. You know, Fareed said on the podcast last week, you never know what's going to capture the attention of the world. Sometimes it can be one picture of a dead child in connection with the refugee crisis when other pictures of people who have perished don't cause that effect. And here, the world is watching. President Trump has said some things that are regrettable, but has been on other occasions a little bit stronger than you would expect him to be. But yes, he has said a lot of things that are very regrettable about this. And part of the reason is that I think it's a compelling story about an individual who worked for the press, who is an American resident, who has U.S. citizen children, and also the brazenness of it, and also some of the you know, really sort of gory, uh, macabre details of what may have happened. The drama of 15 or more uh, Saudi agents flying into Turkey just before the murder happened in the embassy. The reporting that one person was actually a forensic specialist. Why would you need that if you were just going to engage in an interrogation? And then there's this matter of the very evocative bone saw. What I would say about that is lots and lots of reporters are repeating without skepticism some of these details. As far as I know, at the time we're taping this on Wednesday morning, there has been no independent confirmation from a U.S. source that that I'm aware of or by a U.S. press agency that there was a bone saw. And the only thing I would say is, you know, there are reasons to believe that the Turkish reports are credible. The reports that have been clearly fed to Turkish pro-government papers by Erdogan and others. But we have a lot of experience with the Turkish press. I have personal experience with the Turkish press who have made things up about me in particular with respect to a case we had. So while it may be true that some of these things uh, happen the way that the Turks have been saying they're happening, I would just caution you on being careful not to believe absolutely everything you hear. And while he at the moment is, is the most visible journalist who has fallen into harm's way, the other irony about this is, as has been documented by lots of folks, Turkey itself, headed by Erdogan, is not exactly known for being open to a free press and being tolerant of a free press and actually letting the press be free. So there are a lot of weird things going on here. I think it's important that the world is paying attention. 
I think it's important that there be some consequences, and I guess we'll see what happens. This next question comes by email from Matt, who says, Hey, Preet, love your show. I'm a special agent with the Justice Department investigative agency, one other than the FBI. I've noticed that when you talk about cases on which you've worked, you usually, though not always, describe the federal investigators as FBI agents. I was curious about this. In my district, the FBI, DEA, ATF, and HSI bring comparable numbers of cases to our U.S. Attorney's Office. My question is, does the FBI bring most of the cases in the SDNY? Did you prefer working the kind of cases the FBI brought? Or is FBI agent just an accessible shorthand for a mass audience? It's a great question, and I want to make very clear from the outset that I enjoyed working with and have great respect for every single federal agency and also local agency with which we worked. We worked a lot with NYPD as well. I have had on the show, as you know, if you're a listener, the current police commissioner of the NYPD and the head of counterintel, John Miller. So we worked with a lot of folks, including the DEA, ATF, IRS, which you didn't mention, agents from the Department of Housing and Urban Development, from the Commerce Department, from the State Department. And so I guess it is sometimes the case that as a matter of shorthand, when you're referring to something, I may, without exhausting every letter of the alphabet, refer to the FBI. The other folks who I do want to single out who helped us make some of the most important groundbreaking cases in our office were our in-house internal federal investigators who were not associated with any outside agency, but were the best of the best who had worked at NYPD or other agencies in the past who made a lot of our corruption cases, our gang cases, helped to exonerate people who were prosecuted by other offices who were serving time for crimes they did not commit. So I'll be more careful going forward. We did do a lot of cases with the FBI. Every terrorism case was led by an FBI agent through the Joint Terrorism Task Force, but there were agents from other law enforcement agencies who were part of the JTTF, as you know, as well. And it's probably true, although I never looked at the numbers because I never thought about it this way, it's probably true that we did more cases with FBI than with other agencies. Didn't mean to minimize anyone else's efforts and my deep respect and partnership with other folks. I miss all of them. The next question comes in an email from Eric, who writes, Hi, Preet. I was born in the U.S. and came up through school learning that the U.S. is the greatest democracy in the world. Lately, though, I have started to think that American democracy is like the Atari computer I bought before entering college in 1985. It was was a great machine at that time, but is now so outdated as to be practically non-functional. You have spoken movingly about the wonders of the American system, but are certainly not blind to its shortcomings. Do you believe that American democracy is a positive example for the world? Well, that's a profound question that has sad implications and also uplifting ones. Um, I like your reference to the Atari. A lot of the listeners of the show probably don't know what the hell you're talking about. I had an Atari computer, which I thought was a wonderful thing way, way back when. Overall, look, I think American democracy is strong and is a positive example for the world, but it's like anything else, right? The health of a person can deteriorate if you're not careful, just like the health of the body politic can deteriorate if you're not careful. And I think there are a lot of tests coming up. You know, the the institutions that I think remain strong, although are at risk, are the judiciary because people are independent, but you have to be careful about how far it swings in a particular direction. I think the press is still strong. The First Amendment still lives, but there are threats to the press and denigration of truth. So they're under siege a little bit. I think Congress is a mixed bag, as I've said many times. And I think the test of Congress will be what happens after the midterm elections. If the House and Senate don't change hands, then I I don't know what will happen. If they do change hands, then I think it'll be a great test for the opposing party to figure out the way to be responsible, diligent in their oversight, which means doing it in a way that is not vindictive, is not 
in the gutter. That's not counterproductive, but that's fair and reasonable in what the Founding Fathers, I think, intended for there to be a check and a balance, which we have very little of at the moment. So is American democracy a positive example for the world? I think it will be if more people vote in this election. I think it will be if people can show that when they think the norms are being trampled, uh, that they stand up and say what they think is right and what they believe in. I think that there are lots of opportunities for both members of Congress and also private citizens through peaceful protest or through eloquent responses to things they think are going wrong in the country to show everyone that if you do those things here, you don't get sent to jail, you don't get sent to a gulag, you are not shut up, even if you were demeaned by tweet or you're ridiculed or made fun of, that doesn't shut you up. I remain overall optimistic that American democracy is a positive example, but it's clearly being tested. My guest this week is Samantha B. She's the host of Full Frontal, her weekly comedy show that airs at 10.30 on Wednesday nights on TBS. I talked to her about the craft of comedy, the magic of The Daily Show, where she worked for many years, and finding humor in even very dark news. And we talk about when a joke goes too far, like that time President Trump tweeted about her word choice, and she got a lot of blowback. That's coming up. Stay tuned. You know what's not smart? So many things. Lying to federal investigators, yelling during a job interview, and another not-so-smart thing, the way hiring used to be. Job sites that overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes. Read the right resumes with ZipRecruiter. Because now more than ever, we all know the importance of surrounding yourself with the best people. Now there's a smarter way at ZipRecruiter.com Preet. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology finds the right people for you and actively invites them to apply. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com Preet. That's ZipRecruiter.com P-R-E-E-T. Brushing your teeth is one of the most important things you do for your health every day but you're probably doing it wrong. Quip is here to help. Quip is a better electric toothbrush designed to make brushing your teeth more simple, affordable, and even enjoyable. We're supposed to brush our teeth for a full two minutes. But who does that? This ad is 60 seconds long. So you could use this ad as a guide. Listen once, brush your bottom teeth. Start the ad over, brush your top teeth. Or you could just get Quip. Quip has a built-in two-minute timer. It pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides, helping to guide a full and even clean. Also, three out of four people use bristles that are old, worn out, and ineffective. With Quip, brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5. Quip helps you clean your teeth right. The right bristles, the right timing. That's why they're backed by over 20,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash preet right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash preet. Samantha B. Yes. Thank you for being on the show. I'm so delighted that you had me. It's, um, can I say a quick thank you first? What? So because of you. Okay. Oh my God. Because of you. 
Let me get it out. My 17-year-old daughter, who mostly rolls her eyes at me, Mm -hmm. thinks that it's kind of cool that I'm talking to you. And even more importantly, her friends think it's cool that I'm talking to you. Really? I think you're a big deal in that set. That's so nice to hear. I'm not a big deal with my own children. Well, that's how it works. I know. Since you mentioned that, can we talk about your house? Yes. So you're, you're married. Yes. To Jason Jones. I am. Who is also a comedian. Yes. He was on The Daily Show. Funny guy. Not as funny as you. Bless you. What, what? I think he's very funny. But can I ask? What, yes. So what is it like in your house? Do you it's, tell a joke? He tells a joke. You tell a joke. Oh, my God. Back and forth. <laughs> can you imagine how unlivable that would be? That sounds awful. It would be kind of fun if you had me over. It would be fun if you came to our carnival of a home as a guest. <laughs> but to live in it would be insufferable. But I, guess, but I guess my question is so. Yes. You know, lawyers sometimes marry each other. I'm married mm-hmm. to a lawyer. And lawyering is work. So we didn't come home and like, I'll do some lawyering stuff and then you do some lawyering stuff and then mm-hmm. I do some. So do you studiously avoid being funny at home because it's work? No. No, it's so natural for us to read. <laughs> oh, my God. No, it, we <laughs> we talk about work a lot Yeah, in, in a serious way, for sure. Yeah, we talk seriously about it. But we, we just had our anniversary. We've been married for 17 years. Congratulations. So thank you. I think we still laugh together. That seems important to me. Well, do we you find do you each feel other s- funny? Yes. I think yes. it's very important. Even in non-professionally funny households. In non-professionally funny households, we still are not cool to our children or to each other at all. Do you feel a relationship obligation to laugh more heartily at your husband's jokes and vice versa? No. Not at all. <laughs> no, we, I don't know. I think we're pretty honest with each other, actually. One thing is true, though. We always have each other's backs. That's important. Like, we are each other's biggest fan. Probably harshest critic, in a way. We're right. each other's toughest critics. When, so when Jason tells a joke mm-hmm. at home. Yes. Is it a dad joke, by definition? And yes. does that mean you win? Always. But my children find him so funny. They do? They don't. Yeah, they find me shrill. No, I'm joking. <laughs> they, don't, they don't think it's interesting. Obviously, we're just as funny as each other. We... Um, go toe-to-toe, but the kids don't want to see me as funny. They don't want to. (laughs) They don't want to think about it because mostly they just want to think of me as like the lady who comes home and puts on a house dress and picks all their Cheerios off the floor. But they they know that you're kind of cool and their friends must think that you're cool. I don't think so. No, I don't think so. No, you you think just my daughter's friends think that? It's possible. It's other people's it's a daughters. weird demographic. Other people's, <laughs> da- other people's daughters think that. But she, yeah, no. And if I start to think I'm cool, they very quickly disabuse me of that notion. That's <laughs> so what they're it's for. Great. That's what they're that's for. That's why you have them. Yep. That's exa- That's the only reason I have them. <laughs> right, because you're so arrogant. Keep it real. Like, I'm really, really arrogant. Why don't we have uh, some children I- <laughs> remove, remove that narcissism that's right away? That's it. It doesn't work for all people. So what is, what is in your hand? Oh. I have my for the listeners. There's something mine, in in Sam B's hands. A friend of mine gave me three containers of Theraputty. Which Theraputty. Is, it's like <laughs> it's it's basically silly putty. It has the texture of silly putty, but it's in prettier colors. And I think it's for physical therapy for your hand well, why, or why emotional you... therapy for your mind. What I want to tell you is that the next phase of my life is just me and a pottery wheel. <laughs> I'm, Kind of, only part, partly joking. I actually love working with clay. Okay. I'm going to make you a beautiful bowl. And then it's going to melt immediately because it's basically silly putty. What makes a person funny? 
Oh, I don't know. Next question. I don't know. I am not sure. Do we destroy the magic of it by analyzing it? I th- so should we not? Possibly. I don't know that you. I don't know that you can really. You're not going to come up with a, a really tight answer. Needy people become funny people. I don't know. It was like the only weapon I had in my arsenal when I was growing up. That's for sure. Well, here's the thing you said. Oh no! You you're said gonna, once. Oh. I'm going to quote from you. Okay. I think that you become a comedian mm-hmm. because all you feel is self doubt. Yeah. Yes. It, it probably comes out of a place of insecurity. But that I must guess. be surprising to some folks because it takes a lot of self confidence to get out on stage and mm-hmm. put yourself out there. So how do you balance between insecurity, lack of self confidence, and having self confidence? Like, I don't understand I how don't you know. square those. It's a weird. It, there is a there is a weird alchemy to it. Like I would never. I'm not the loudest person. I've never been. If you knew me then, you would never say, "Oh, you'll be on TV one day doing jokes." So you were on a show for a long time. Yes. That was a big deal to me. I watched it religiously every day. Thank you. Called The Daily Show. Yes, I can see them. I can see their office from my office. We're sitting in your office right now, actually. It's, we are. You, have, you have a nice view. I have a great view. For cable. Pace the bills. So, so The Daily Show, <laughs> uh, you should consider a podcast sometime. I will. Pay smaller I don't know if bills. I can handle it. <laughs> <laughs> so I read about your audition oh, yeah. for The Daily Show. Uh-huh. And I also have had Hassan Minaj, uh-huh. who's wonderful. I hope you guys are friends because you should be friends. Yeah, no, that's great. His show is... He's taping his show up the street. Yes, the new Netflix um, show. Yeah. And he describes with some exuberance his audition and the thrill it was to get that job on The Daily Show. Yeah. What was it like for you? I think it was a similar thrill. It seemed it was really really a long shot. I mean, they came came to Toronto. They auditioned me in Toronto. Because you're Canadian. Yeah, they were looking for a woman. They didn't have any women on the show for a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't find any in America. They so couldn't they came find to, any. Well, you know, it's it's actually it really benefited me greatly that they did such a piss poor search for a woman <laughs> in the United States, <laughs> and just felt that there was no single woman who could really capture <laughs> the tone of the show. So they did come to Toronto because someone lured them, I suppose, to come yes. and take a look at the bounty of women <laughs> on the market. In Toronto. And, and at so, the time, you were doing what? I was doing sketch comedy in my spare time, but I actually worked at an ad agency. I was just about to give up the performing arts entirely, actually, and transition into a real job at an ad agency. Until fate knocked on your door. And fate knocked on my door, yeah. I'd sort of had it. I worked a lot, but it wasn't really consistent enough for me. I wanted to have a life. Jason and I were married. We had purchased a house. We had a nice life. And I thought, okay, I would like to have a future one day. I'd like to be able to save money and stuff. I probably shouldn't be in the performing arts. And then as luck would have it, I moved to New York and the rest is history. What was your audition like? Uh, Were you nervous? Yes, I was nervous. I trained really hard for it. I actually worked the material really hard because I knew that Daily Show was my favorite show. All I really wanted to do was a good audition for them, like the best audition of my life. And then I thought, okay, that'll be my swan song. And then that's it. Then back to the ad agency? Then back to the ad agency. But I thought, oh, it'll be fine because if I put the most of my heart into this interview for this show that I love and really cherish, then I'll know that I exited with honor (laughs) from this industry that has effed me over. And then then I got a call back. And so I came to New York and I did it in the studio with John. And that was that was very scary. That was very scary for me. But if you're scared when you're performing comedy. I'm not scared when I'm performing comedy. So how do you turn off the fear? It's the outside stuff. It's the like having a conversation with John that was scary. Right. Doing the comedy was easy. Are you terrified now? 
It's, it's really intimidating. <laughs> really I see you scared. picked up the putty. I again. picked up my putty again, you and now I'm just down, like. And now the putty's back in your. I don't know what the, it looks like. A tongue. Wouldn't it be incredible if I sculpted something so magnificent with this putty? <laughs> you would be so surprised. Yes, you could. You yeah. could. You could depart with honor. Roll it up. It just looks like a big, orangey pink tongue, that's hanging out of, a dead deer's mouth. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. So that's no, that's that a nice image you painted for my, my very sober-minded listening <laughs> audience. <laughs> Why are you having me on? Oh, no. Because you're terrific. No. Okay. So why do you think The Daily Show was such a big deal? What, what was the tone of the show that you thought you got? Well, this is actually true. It's going to sound sad when it comes out of my mouth, but this, what they liked or saw in me was that I could perform the material, but also I seemed really over it. Like I had been in the business for too long, <laughs> like a haggard veteran of the news. So what they were looking for was a person who could deliver semi-serious news in a comedic way, who right. also seemed like she had been in the business for a long time and had been beaten down by it. <laughs> they were really looking for that beaten that down quality. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that was my strength. And I delivered, preach. <laughs> I delivered. That's not how I thought of it, but... <laughs> Um, why do I think it, well, you know, when I started there, I started in 2003, I was a very, um, dedicated viewer of the show, but I wouldn't say that it really kind of mainstreamed itself until 2004, 2008, you know, with the, with the elections. Because I think John found his footing with the show. He had changed the format enough to suit his needs and that's when it really when he was able to kind of turn the ship in in the direction of his own personal passions, that's when the show really started to soar. You did a lot of interviews, and you still do. Mm-hmm. You did one with me yes, on I the did. new show, Full Frontal. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that means. It's not even new anymore. It's mean, <laughs> been on for two and a half years or something. Well, like you know, relatively, relatively, relatively new. new. I think of us as established now. We're like establishment. <laughs> I don't know that you want to use that. No, I know. Term. I, don't, I, know. I don't think it's no, cutting edge not. still. Thank you. And it's evolving. But so you interview a lot of serious people. Yes. In a um, satirical way, is that mm-hmm. how you would describe it? I think how so. do you prepare for an interview of a straight? serious, Mm non-funny person in a way that's funny to the audience? Well, I don't stress over it. Also, I know the material. I know what we're going to be talking about because it's whatever the subject matter is, it's of particular interest to me. And so that's why. Because it's your show. Yeah. And then I just mostly try to have fun. I mostly just try to have fun in the moment. I think you had fun, right? I had a lot of fun. I'm going, to, I'm going to come talk about that in, oh, okay. in, a, in a second. Oh, good. But what you just said makes me think of something. Do you ever bring people in mm-hmm. under false or mildly false no. pretenses like Sasha Baron Cohen does? No. Never. What do you think about Sasha Baron Cohen? I have always really liked his work. I actually didn't watch the latest incarnation of the show. I don't watch comedy ever. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I don't listen to podcasts. My... What? I do. I love them. You don't want to watch the competition, or is it going to get in your um, head? No, I just don't. That's not how I relax. I don't know. Maybe I just know the, how the sausage is made, and I don't find it interesting anymore. But I don't really watch comedy all that much. So, you know, here's what I was impressed by, and maybe I didn't appreciate, and maybe some folks don't. Both when I came on Full Frontal mm-hmm. and when I did a similar kind of sketch with Hassan on The mm-hmm. Daily Show, how much work you put into it. Oh, it's a lot of work. Yeah, so it's a lot of work. So, we taped, you and I taped. I don't know, like an hour or mm-hmm. something like that. And there were there were various bits you did, including an S&M guy coming out of a crate, sure. which thankfully for my mother and father didn't make it 
I know. I wanted the, to, I was gonna ask you. I was going to ask cut. you if your parents watched it and liked it or what they thought of it because that was you a know they're they're not they're um my parents are fairly conservative. Sure. They like more staid stuff. They like it when like when I'm like it's it's funny. It's funny. You're literally the second comedic presence in a row that I've interviewed for this podcast. Last oh. week was was Fareed Zakaria. <laughs> <laughs> does who does a lot of sketch mm-hmm. work? Now they oh yeah they like it when I'm on like Fareed sure you know GPS. Okay. Um, so what you're saying is they didn't like it and no, I they liked I, it. No, they liked it they liked it they liked it but you know it's a little it's a little risque sure but my question is and and with Hassan too I think we taped at NYU Law School for like an hour and twenty minutes and mm-hmm. only three or four you know it may, it may be that with most people you tape just a couple of minutes and you nail it and with me it was so unfunny that there was only was four just, good minutes it was so I. <laughs> If that's true, <laughs> you could just say so, and it's and it's fine, and then give me some putty. Yeah, normally we just do three or four minutes with the experts. But there's a lot, yeah. but but a lot of people wrote a lot of stuff. Yeah, and figured out a lot of funny things to do. And a lot of the things that we do were still funny. When I sit down to do an interview, there are so many directions a piece could possibly take. We think that we know what the through line is going in. We think that we know what it will be. But a conversation can take you in interesting directions, and so you want to be able to pivot and follow the direction of the person that you're speaking with or follow the theme in a different way. The news also changes. We need to be a little bit nimble, so we always really overshoot and then see what works best. Is political comedy more difficult than other kinds of comedy? I don't know. I don't really do other kinds of comedy. (laughs) I don't know. It all seems hard to me. Comedy is, you know, it's – listen, it's not – Hard work in the sense that work is hard. I mean, it's still performing. It's, right. it's still pretty cushy and it's it's fun to do. You know, it's a lot of like thinking and doing and trying and experimenting. So it's it's actually to get to a place of comedy that people sort of shrug off actually. It's a pretty arduous journey. Did you think it was weird going back to The Daily Show for a second mm-hmm. that lots and lots of people would get their actual direct news from the Daily Show, I mean, literally fake news. Right. John Stewart right. joke about that. Right, right. I mean, is that odd? I think that it's not true. I think that people say that a lot, but that it's not really strictly accurate. I think that if you didn't have some comprehension of what was going on, if you didn't have some understanding of the news of the day, I don't think you would find these shows very funny or engaging. I think you come to it with more knowledge than you think you have. And so it's really just a different way to analyze the news. I mean, I think there are, we're following the techniques of journalism, and we have journalists working for us. Certainly, I do. Um, yeah, why do why do you have journalists? Because being being accurate is very important. I think it's it's very important to us. We work very hard. We fact check constantly. But explain that because part of what you're doing in comedy is exaggeration mm-hmm. and and a little bit making things up, right, and embellishing. So explain to people why it is then you Well, I mean, need- it's okay to make up that Mitch McConnell has another Mitch McConnell living in his chin. Like, that's <laughs> made up. <laughs> it is? I hope it's made up. <laughs> but we want to be clear <laughs> about the stories that we're telling. That there is a Mitch McConnell and he has a chin. And that he has a chin. That he has another. <laughs> so you have your journalists. They, they fact check that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think I understand that. Mm-hmm. Hey, sorry for the interruption. But I have some exciting news about a new podcast I really want to tell you about. It's from Texas Monthly Magazine and Pineapple Street Media. Same folks who make. Stay tuned. The new show is called Underdog, and it goes behind the scenes of the most exciting political race of 2018. 
the battle in Texas between Republican Senator Ted Cruz and his Democratic challenger, Beto O'Rourke. Host Eric Benson has unparalleled access to the campaigns. You'll hear Beto try to break up a fight at one of his rallies. We're good, we're good, sir. Oh, you will not kill me. We're okay. It's okay. It's okay. Cynthia, do you still have those cookies? <laughs> and Ted Cruz explained what it really means to be from the Lone Star State. Do you think it's possible to be a liberal and a true Texan? <laughs> Oh, sure. Look, uh, Willie Nelson's pretty liberal and he's pretty Texan. Uh, But you know what? I like his music more than his politics. Fast Company is called Underdog, the podcast America needs right now. New episodes are coming out every Friday. You can find Underdog, Beto vs. Cruz, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Someone said about you, I'm going to do this quote thing again. Oh, my God. It has been reported to me that someone Uh-oh. once said about you. Oh, boy. I and, and I want to understand this because I think this is very important, okay. especially in this day and age. And I want to come to the present. Therapeutic putty. That you are simultaneously the voice of anger and reason. Hmm. That's are flattering. Those, are those compatible? Sure. I guess so. Someone <laughs> said it. It must be true. <laughs> right. This is why I don't read anything about myself because I, I can't. Well, but are, okay, so are you are you angry? Are you angry? Well, sure. I mean, not right now. But it's not right very... now. I mean, yeah, no. I think we all kind of we. This is a very trying time. It's a very troubling time. There's always something I can get my myself in a knot about for sure. Yeah, I'm super. But are you looking for that, or you just happen to be angry? Well, in these I, you don't have times. to look very far <laughs> to find something that <laughs> flames the fire of outrage these days. So, what are the top three things for you that inflame the well, fires? We have a of show, outrage? and we have a we have a show on Wednesday. I'm saving it all up for the show. Oh come on! I don't. But I, mean, I don't I mean, like generally. Okay, how about you know, last week? I don't. I don't. Well, obviously, the killing of a journalist at the Turkish consulate was a very troubling, and I don't think that we have reckoned with that. You know, that's an example of something that's very well covered. There's not much we can add to the conversation about that particular story. So we probably won't talk about it on Wednesday, but there are other things that are happening that we will. The issue is not that, as it might be for some people, Mm -hmm. that it's impossible to say anything funny about that circumstance Mm -hmm. because it's so tragic. I mean, certainly we've been confronted with stories that just don't make any sense for us to do. We just couldn't figure out a way to frame it comedically. You feel limited. The comedic angle does not make itself known. And so you kind of mull the stories for a little while, and sometimes it just never makes itself known. The comedic angle doesn't make itself known, as Mm -hmm. if you're just trying to discover the thing, not make the thing. Yeah, you want to discover something that emerges from the material itself. It's all about, it's magic. We just cast a spell. We see what happens. <laughs> you just find it. And you, yeah, and you, you just play it. with your putty. Yeah, you just find it. But, Easy. But, you, 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 but you've made a difference sometimes when you've covered a story. So, for example, the Georgia rape kits. I don't, you know. Tell that story for a second. Well, okay. There were a whole lot of people working behind the scenes to close the, the loophole regarding uh, rape kits in Georgia. Because so they wasn't, weren't being tested. Yeah. In a timely way. Right. Yeah. So it was not our work that change things. It was the decades of work before us that actually made change. We keep getting credit for it, but it was not. I mean, we brought the issue to light for sure. I don't know if that subtly expedited things or just pulling it into the national conversation, but um, 
I think it would have happened without us as well. There were people on the scene. I don't like to take credit for things like that because I know it's not, I know it's not the show. I know it's the hard work of lots of, lots and lots of people on the ground in Georgia. What do you, what do you find most gratifying about this work you do? It really merges my two favorite styles of entertainment. (laughs) (laughs) Journalism and comedy. (laughs) It's not, you know, I love to be able to break down news. It's just a genre of television that I have personally enjoyed and benefited from for so long now. Like I loved The Daily Show. It was the perfect convergence of things that I really care deeply about. Getting to work with it in this way is it's incredibly gratifying. I like to talk about things that other people aren't talking about or put a spin on them, make them palatable, analyze things. Do you have advice for journalists from your perspective? Can they do a better job in some ways? Oh, sure. A lot of them could do a better job. But I actually think there's tons of great journalism happening right now. And, you know, one of the things that we don't have to worry about and what gives us the freedom to speak the way that we do to speak the way that I do on this show is that we have no access to anyone. There's no pretense of access. Like we don't have to actually worry that the White House won't let us into their dumb briefings. We'll never be invited. We're not invited to any, we're not invited to the party. So we get to say whatever and no one can ever stop us. Well, they can, but. (laughs) Thank you for Mm -hmm. the segue. I was wondering, how am I going to get into this other topic? Yeah. So there are limits. Sure. On what people can say, not because there's a law against it, but because of you know, what people's reactions might be. Sure. And so there was a time when you said something Mm -hmm. that made a lot of people really upset, including specifically Mm -hmm. and most vehemently the White House. Yeah. And I have have another quote before I get to that question. Well, I hope to upset them many more times. (laughs) Um, Your husband, Mr. Sam B, said, a lot of performers will not go as far as she's willing to go. Mm -hmm. And so my my first question is. He said that? I'm told. That's sweet. I love him. Why is it important to go far? And what did you learn, if anything, from the time when you, on your show, mm-hmm. referred to Ivanka Trump as a as a feckless mm-hmm. c-word? Have you noticed? Have you just remarked the number of times and ways that you've heard the word feckless since then? I'm just saying. Did you ever hear it before? Do you hear it now? I don't, yes, every, you do. Every week someone says a word on the show Everywhere that I don't understand. Last week, Fareed Zakaria, <laughs> your, your co-comedian type, sure. okay. said anodyne, and he never defined it. Oh, good for him. So you got in trouble because you said feckless. I did. Yeah, I did. Um, got, I mean, got in trouble. It was, it was terrible. It was a word that I had used on the show, I don't know, 25 times prior to that moment. It was just contextually i think in the news cycle everybody was very much talking about roseanne it inflamed people in the exact exactly unintended way i knew it would be for context maybe not everyone knows the story Uh you were doing a bit on uh and you were angry about the the separation of families at the border surely i was and then you made a reference to ivanka trump Mm -hmm. who you were basically accusing of being what a hypocrite I mean, going back in time, the story, it had not really taken hold of the public consciousness until the weekend prior to the show. And people really all of a sudden learned that children were being separated from their parents. And the news cycle over the weekend was all about 
babies being taken from their parents. It was terrible. It was a real reckoning. And the news cycle was, it was just captivated. There was nothing else to talk about. We should still only be, I mean, you know, it's one of the things we should. It's it's, not fixed. It's not fixed. Not by a long shot. It was outrageous. People were freaking out. You would have to be living under a rock in the Marianas Trench to miss that news cycle, particularly if you work at the White House. And so that weekend, she just put out a, it was a really super tone deaf tweet about her own kid. And it was, it was. Did it anger you? I interpreted it as purposeful and cruel, actually. And so that was the end point of the act that we did about children being separated from their parents, which we were all so angry and just inconsolable about. That was the end of the act. It was too much for people. It's a fairly puritanical country, if I can just be honest about that. I come from Canada. We don't care about the C word there. Not that much. And people flipped out. But well, do you understand why they did? Uh, frankly, no. Frankly, no. And I don't think that I'll – I'm starting to get really mad. <laughs> frankly, <laughs> I no. I, I, I actually I don't. I understand, Even power, I, 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 I understand why uh, a sliver of our audience, why it was upsetting for them. Okay, it's a powerful word. It's something that I used very consistently on the show. So to me, I didn't think that it was going to be such an outrageous moment. And no, I frankly don't understand why the entire news media pivoted to that. I don't. There was a much bigger issue, much broader issue to be angry about that everyone could have been focusing on. And they did not. And for many, many days thereafter, it was all about a word that I said. It was really the word heard around the world. I certainly have friends who have friends in Guatemala. And they were like, hey, we heard about this thing that you did. Like it really was (laughs) – It was really a moment. I don't relish it. A lot of my audience was unhappy with it, so I understood that. Okay, I get it. Why do you think your audience was unhappy about it? Like you can understand why Ivanka Trump's people being unhappy, but why your audience? For a lot of people, it's, you know, it's the worst word that's been used against them and the worst day of their life. So you don't want to trigger people in that way necessarily. So I understood. I walked it back. I did. Why'd you apologize? Because it was, okay, it was too far for people. That's fine. I understand. Okay, message received. And I was very apologetic in particular that it took the story out of the news. I mean, it it took the story of the migrant children out of the news cycle. It bumped it out of the news cycle. That's crazy to me. That was outrageous. I'm still, I'll never, never, ever be able to believe that that happened, but it did. How do you keep your edge after that? You know, do you have to be worried now? Or no. your staff worried now you that the what? next thing is going to blow up in that way? I have to say that I have to give a lot of credit to the people who are responsible for us having a show on the air. They were very good about it. We were very supported here. I'm very grateful for that. And I don't think that we've pulled back our edges at all. I now understand perhaps that that word is too much and it. Are you going to stop? Are you going to stop using care. the word even in other contexts? I actually did stop. Yes, I did, because it seems to be. 
it seems to be too distracting. <laughs> right. I want to talk about another issue sure. that is much in the news, the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. And lots of bad things being done by lots of people in power sure. in the media industry and in the comedy business, mm -hmm. including you know, people like Louis C.K. and mm -hmm. others. What do you make of that? Do you think it's equally prevalent everywhere or do you think certain industries have a bigger problem oh with God. males using their power? That's such an adorable question. <laughs> That's adorable. Now I'm going to just look I'm into the eyes of every other woman who's in the room. <laughs> yes, it's as prevalent in every other industry. <laughs> of course. Yes. What's interesting about that is the stories that you read about mm -hmm. are focused on, on some industries and not others. So for sure. example, so I don't know quite why that is. Well, I think that there are a fair number of industries that aren't really ready for their reckoning yet. Maybe. Like the legal industry. The legal industry. You don't hear a lot of stories from the legal industry. You don't hear a lot of stories about the financial services industry. Right. I don't hear any, but I know that there are, there are a lot of stories to be told emerging from that world. Yeah. I mean, that world is nuts. So you don't think there's anything in particular about media, journalism, or comedy? Not at all. Wherever there are men and women together, there are Me Too stories. Yeah. <laughs> so. Do you think we've we've learned anything from the last year, especially as we are here just a couple of weeks removed from Brett Kavanaugh being confirmed? I mean, have we learned anything? I think we are <sighs> – I think women have learned something. I think that we have learned that our stories don't have value – to a lot of the people in power right now. I certainly, I'm speaking personally, more people told me their own stories that they've never told anybody before in the last couple of weeks than ever before in my life. Everybody's got a story. If you don't have a story, that's great, but most people do. Yeah. And so obviously we watched the Kavanaugh hearings laying down like i watched it laying down on the couch like we were distraught by it people were walking out of their offices people were watching the kavanaugh hearings in bars okay it was a moment for this country have we learned anything well we've learned that every woman has a story we've learned that women are pretty angry we know that social movements often come out of women's anger, so we'll see what happens. I don't know. I learned a lot. None of it was good. Yeah, no, I've heard that a lot. Yeah. The Kavanaugh hearings have just ended, mm -hmm. but there's a future event coming up mm -hmm. called the midterm elections. Sure. And you spend time on the show and otherwise talking about how people should vote. It seems very mm -hmm. obvious. And there are lots of campaigns about getting people to vote. Yeah. Why do you think it's so hard to get people to vote in this country? I don't know. It just doesn't feel like... We've really inculcated that feeling of civic engagement, of pride in voting. I don't understand it. We also should have a day off for voting. Yes, we should. I mean, for one thing, we could just give people the day off. We certainly are gerrymandering like there's no tomorrow. Voter suppression is rampant. I, I can understand why someone would look at that system and think I have no place in it. But the one thing that I do know is that if you want to make change – it's the one of the only weapons that you have. I know that change won't happen if people don't use their votes. Right. So I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. And one of the reasons I asked the question is that you've talked about it on the show and, you mm -hmm. know, you, you make some fun of the issue in the sense that you created like a 
a game on a phone to get people. I seem like a real to, hoot in this interview, to, by to, the way. <laughs> I'm very fully aware that I'm like using my therapy and getting really sweaty. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't we made notice. a game. I didn't notice that. Yes, right, we made a it? game for sure to see if we could incentivize people yeah. to care about their vote. There are a couple of things that really that really cause people to vote based on the data. One of the things that can cause someone to vote is a feeling of shame. Like if you out somebody with the details of their voting history and the fact that they don't vote, they can often be shamed into voting. We do not want to do that. But we did wonder if it would be possible to incentivize people to vote in other ways. Like, you know, another thing that's a very positive indicator as to whether or not someone will vote is if they have a plan for voting. So you can shame people to vote. You can also encourage them to make a plan. Having a plan for voting is a strong indicator that you will actually cast a vote. So the, we launched a game to incentivize people with a cash prize. To vote, it's a really fun game. Have you played it? Have you downloaded it? I have not have yet. Not. I have not yet. But I will before the music, Thursday morning. You, you, you can play it every day. We have a game today. I'm going to download it on your phone. Okay. I'm going to grab your phone <laughs> and I'm going to put it on your phone. Why don't you pick the putty back up and the stay, music, stay away from my phone? The, the music alone is worth the price of admission. There is no price of admission. Just it's a it's a trivia game. It's a comedy trivia game, which really no one has ever really done before. It's really funny. It's great. You're going to have a show the Wednesday after the election? We are. We have a show on the Monday and the Wednesday of that week. Okay. It's a two-show week. It's a very special week for Listen us. to that, folks. Two-show week. Two-show week. Before Monday and, and Wednesday. after. Yep. Do you – I assume you start thinking about the Wednesday show in advance of Wednesday. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. So do you, do you sort of have – Two versions of the show yes. in the same way candidates have a concession speech and a victory speech? We do because we learned a very powerful lesson. We had a whole show planned for for Hillary's victory. And we had to pivot really sharply off of that right. in the overnight hours. Yes. So what's the show going to look like generally without secrets if uh, the Republicans retain control of the House and the Senate? Mm-hmm. Well, we well, now that we're mentally prepared for that happening, we should be fine. <laughs> You're meant, how do you mentally prepare We'll have a cake for our audience. Just it depends on which cake we use. We'll have two versions of everything. Will any cakes prepped. be thrown at anyone? No cakes will be thrown. I would never waste cake. That's something you should know about me. I would never waste good cake. Right. I think that's a good principle. To Thank you. Um, last question. Yes. So I'm you know, a serious person. I had a serious job. Yes. Query what? I like I that you've now. become an entertainer. I think that's a compliment. It is. A little bit. You're very entertaining. But I, I begin talks and speeches and things with some with some jokes. Yes. And um, you know, it's sort of hard to come by. If you need me. If I need I'm you to help you. me write a joke, yeah. would you do that? I'm there for you. Just don't if it bombs, don't tell anyone that it came from me. Yeah, but you know, for me, <laughs> the expectations are very low. Because right. I figure a former prosecutor, he's a pretty serious, scoldy kind of guy. And if I tell like a lame dad joke that my kids will roll their eyes at, they're like, mm -hmm. oh, he gave it a shot. Yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you a guarantee. Okay. I'm not gonna, I don't provide no guarantees for my jokes. <laughs> All right. Do you have parting words for America? Uh, I've hectored them enough to vote. Guys, if you don't vote, I just, oh God, <laughs> look where we are today. Yeah. If, if they don't vote, that, that putty is this like dead putty meat. putty is gonna really <laughs> suffer i've worked it so hard sam b thanks for having me thanks for being on the I'm show getting closer to the microphone now <laughs> okay in an act of sincerity yes thank you so much i've enjoyed this i did too thank you all right okay okay then 
So today at the end of the show, I want to talk about some sad news about someone who's very important to this country. It's sad news, but it also has an uplifting side. And it's the story, as you may have seen, of former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor sending a personal note to her fellow Americans. She says, friends and fellow Americans, I want to share some personal news with you. And she says, some time ago, doctors diagnosed me with the beginning stages of dementia, probably Alzheimer's disease. So she is an important figure in American history, not just for the court, not just for women, but for all Americans, even though she was the first woman to serve on the court, appointed in 1981 by President Ronald Reagan. I had the privilege of meeting her personally. I asked her to come speak to my office when I was U.S. attorney to sort of talk to him about democracy, the law, the rule of law. And we sat at a table at the International Court of Trade uh, with a full house, off the record with staff and attorneys. And I asked her questions. It sort of was, I guess, good training for Stay Tuned, this podcast. And she was incredibly inspiring, talking not just about the law, but about how to be a good person, whether you have a powerful position that involves a robe and a gavel, or you're an ordinary citizen. And one of the incredible things about her since her retirement, although this is something that she was devoted to throughout her life on the bench and before in a varied career that included elective office, which is something sorely lacking on the court now, but she talks a lot about and cares a lot about civics and decency and how we go about engaging ourselves in democracy. There was a question at the beginning of this, of this episode about whether or not American democracy is still a model for the world. And I said, I think it is, but it needs to be sustained and it needs to be nourished. And Sandra Day O'Connor is one of the people that gives you hope, given the message that she puts out for how citizens should act and behave and how we have to constantly teach our young people to be good citizens. And so in her letter, if you haven't read it, you should. She says, I've seen firsthand how vital it is for all citizens to understand our constitution and unique system of government and participate actively in their communities. It is through this shared understanding of who we are that we can follow the approaches that have served us best over time, working collaboratively together in communities and in government to solve problems, putting country and the common good above party and self-interest, and holding our key governmental institutions accountable. What a good message at this time. She says further, as my three sons are tired of hearing me say, it's not enough to understand You've got to do something. There is no more important work than deepening young people's engagement in our nation. And then further, she says, it is my great hope that our nation will commit to educating our youth about civics and to helping young people understand their crucial role as informed, active citizens in our nation. To achieve this, I hope that private citizens, counties, states, and the federal government will work together to create and fund a nationwide civics education initiative. Sounds like a pretty good idea to me. One of the things we try to do on the show is talk about civics and talk about how you engage yourself in government, not just to understand it, but to understand it and then figure out ways you can be involved in it, no matter what your views are. If you hold them in good faith and with integrity and with good intentions, then you should stand up for what you believe in and do it in a way that's honorable, honest, and respectful of other people's opinions. And at this time, even though she's giving the sad news that she's not well, the fact that Sandra Day O'Connor is putting forth this message at that time in a way that people will hear it, I think is very important. So best wishes to Sandra Day O'Connor 
Thanks to her for her public service that has lasted a lifetime and best to her family. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Samantha B. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Barube, Henry Malofsky, Courtney Harrell, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, Vinay Basti, and Tamara Sepper. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.